Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Hey, welcome to Alpine Church. It's great to see you guys here this morning. And, and I just want to quickly say if this happens to be your first Sunday, thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you feel welcome today. We hope that we're able to help you pursue God today. We good? All right. <laughs> my name's John Bellis. I'm the lead pastor up at Alpine Logan. And I'm praying that my voice will hold out. Um, I spent the last two days at the 4A State Wrestling Championships and there was a considerable amount of screaming and cheering and yelling, and uh, so I'm hoping that my voice will hang in there for you guys. We are digging into our third week in this sermon series that we're calling Culture Wars. And what we're doing in this series is we're spending five weeks going through the book of First Peter. If you happen to miss weeks one or two, I just want to remind you, you can always go to PursueGod.org, and you can either listen to the podcast that we did on the sermon, or you can watch the small group video or if you go to the church's website, alpinechurch.org, and then click on resources, you can get audio links to the full sermon as well. So I'd encourage you to catch up if you missed that. But just briefly, in the first week, we talked about the fact that as believers, as followers of Christ, you and I are going to be slightly out of step with culture. That this isn't our permanent home. We're foreigners here. And because of that, there's going to be persecution. There are going to be trials. In fact, Peter didn't say there might be trials. He didn't say there's a possibility you'll have some trials. He said you must endure many trials, but only for a little while. That was one of the encouraging parts of week one. And then last week, we talked about how we should act in the midst of these culture wars. We talked about how we should be defined by the kingdom of God, how we should be a light to those around us, that we need to learn how to submit to human authority. And that we should be connected to God's people. And I hope you've had some opportunities to talk about those things this past week. But even more, I hope we've actually done those things this last week. I hope that we've applied what we learned in God's Word last Sunday. And as we jump into week three, I think it's important to reestablish that this isn't actually Peter's letter to the church. This is God's letter to the church. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, Peter is the author in the sense that he put the original words down on the parchment, but every single word he originally communicated is exactly what God wanted him to communicate. God didn't just send him a brief outline and say, okay, Peter, you can take and run with it from here. Everything Peter communicated is what God wanted him to communicate, and that's extremely important for us today. Because if these were just Peter's words, we might say they're outdated. In fact, I can guarantee our culture would say they're outdated. We might say that they're old-fashioned or even irrelevant. But because they're God's words, they are just as relevant today as the day that they were put on paper. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so here's the question that we're going to try to answer today. How do we define family roles and the relationship of husbands and wives? Do we take our cues from Scripture or from our culture? Things just got real, didn't they? <laughs> Anybody else feel the tension in the room turn up just a little bit? As I was looking at this series, I figured week three would be the one that would be the most challenging for us. Now, Pastor Brian is the one who schedules all the teaching pastors, and I have obviously done something to upset him. 
Because last year he made me teach the Eros love sermon on Valentine's Day, which is basically the sex sermon. I had to do the gluttony sermon on Thanksgiving weekend. And now I'm talking about the roles of husbands and wives. So I need to apologize for something and I'll figure that out and I'll I'll ask him what that is. But I'm going to do the very best I can today to communicate what Scripture teaches. I've asked the Holy Spirit to make me aware of my own filters, my own biases, my own perspectives in this, and hopefully eliminate those. Because if we're honest, we all come to these ideas, these topics with a certain perspective. Our ideas have been shaped by something. Maybe they were shaped by the home that we grew up in. Or maybe it was from feedback we got from our peers. Maybe it's culture or media. Likely it's a combination of all those. My hope and my prayer for all of us is that the loudest voice we would hear would be the Word of God. That that's the voice we would pay attention to. So if you felt yourself tense up just a little bit when we put that question on the screen, if you have a little voice inside saying, oh great, here's where the pastor tells me I have to submit to my husband, or here's where the pastor tells me I have to be the spiritual leader of my home, I would just remind you as we just sang, God is good. God is so good. And if God gave us guidelines for the structure of the family, he did it with our best in mind. He did it because he wants the best for us and we can trust him in that. Now the title we've given for today's message is misinformation on the family. That's a word that we see thrown out all the time now, isn't it? We see this word misinformation almost everywhere. We see Facebook posts that are being censored and YouTube videos that are taken down because of misinformation or at least alleged misinformation. I know of commercials that were produced for the Super Bowl and for the Olympics that didn't run because someone, somewhere, said they were promoting misinformation. We see podcasts getting removed off of platforms. We see artists leaving certain platforms because some podcasts weren't taken off because of misinformation. Seems like everywhere we turn, somebody is fact-checking someone, and that's not all bad. I'm not against fact-checking, as long as that's really what's going on. I would hope that you're in the habit of fact-checking us. I hope that you don't ever just take for granted what we say from the pulpit on Sunday, but that you'd go back and you would dig into God's Word and you would fact-check it and you would say, are they really teaching God's Word? But it's interesting to me that in culture's pursuit to eliminate misinformation, nobody seems to care about all the misinformation that's out there in regards to the family, in regards to the roles of husbands and wives, because there's a lot of garbage that culture has to say about it that contradicts what God's Word says, and nobody seems to want to talk about that. It seems to be off limits. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what the Bible says versus what culture says about the family. So let's start with what culture says. Culture says, I'm the boss of me. No one can tell me what to do. I deserve to call the shots. In fact, I would say our culture celebrates rebellion and pushing back against authority. The second thing that I think culture is trying to teach us is that beauty is skin deep. Did you know we spend over $50 billion a year in the United States alone on cosmetics and skincare products? And guys, before you get too smug, it's not just the ladies who are buying them, okay? Next thing that culture tries to tell us is that patriarchy is evil. 
Now, there is no doubt that injustices and evil have been committed in patriarchal societies. There's no doubt that men have messed up. But I think we're going to see that biblical patriarchy is not evil. It's part of God's plan in the family. Fourth thing that we're going to talk about is the fact that culture says men and women are the same. In fact, culture has a long list of names. They'll call you if you dare to say that men and women are different. But it's clear from Scripture from the very beginning, it says that he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's a differentiation between men and women in the creation story. And lastly, culture says that Christians are divided. And I would say in some ways Christians are divided. I think culture's a little bit right, but we'll dig into that a little more in just a minute. So what I want to do now is I want to go back and I want to compare what the Bible says about each one of these issues. And Peter addresses all of these in Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. So again, culture says, I'm the boss of me. The Bible says, submit to authority. And we're going to start in the very beginning of 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have your Bible there, you can go ahead and go to verses 1 and 2. And here's what Peter writes. He says, in the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Now, the chapter starts out with, in the same way. In the same way as what? Obviously, Peter is connecting this chapter to something that he wrote earlier in the letter. And so if you think back to chapters 1 and 2, Peter's talking about last week about how all of us, husbands and wives, need to submit to authority. We all need to submit to, to human authority, government authority, our employers, etc. So this idea of submission is mutual. He doesn't call wives to submit to their husbands in a vacuum. Peter talked about how our example was Jesus in this, how Jesus submitted so this is connected to the larger call of all believers to have a heart of submission. Now there is a, a cultural concept to this. I want you to think just for a minute about the original audience to who Peter is writing. Right? In Peter's time, in the ancient culture, before Christianity, it was almost unthinkable for a wife to adopt a different religion than her husband. But then Christianity came along and turned that on its head. And we see in the New Testament lots of examples of women who come to faith before their husbands do. And so along with that came questions. Should I leave my husband since he's not a believer? Am I superior to him now because I'm free in Christ? Should, should my behavior towards him change? And Peter had to give instruction on that. That's one of the reasons this is in the letter. But this isn't strictly a cultural commandment. For whatever reason, and I confess, I don't know why, God has placed the mantle of leadership and authority in the home on the husband. That's not just cultural. The original Greek word that the New Living Translation translate accept the authority, when that was used outside of the New Testament, when it was used in everyday vocabulary, it referred to a soldier submitting to the authority of a higher-ranking soldier. So the issue is authority. Ladies, I know you're probably thinking, well, that's easy for you to say. You're a guy. <laughs> of course you're going to say that. Be patient with me. Okay? Hang in there with me. First, I would remind you that submission to authority can be totally consistent with equality in terms of importance, dignity, and honor. 
They're not mutually exclusive. See, we spent five weeks in our Trinity series before we started this First Peter series. And I hope one of the things that that series did is it cemented in your mind that every person of the Godhead is fully God. There is no God junior. And yet we see this beautiful scene in the garden where Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father and he says, Father, if there is any way at all you can take this cup of suffering from me, please take it. But not my will be done, thy will be done. So we see God the Son submit to God the Father. Did that make him any less God? Absolutely not. Jesus was and still is equal to God the Father, even though he submitted to his authority in that situation. They were and are still equal. Just like we're going to see husbands and wives are still equal, even when you submit to the authority of your husband. Second, if you look at the command that Peter gives us in verse 7 to the husbands, there is a sense when the husband, on a regular basis, should be putting the needs and the desires of his wife ahead of his own. That is submission. I am submitting to the needs and the desires of my wife over my own when I put hers on a higher level than my own. There is mutual submission. The submission is interwoven. And we see it again in Ephesians chapter 5. That's another verse that talks about wives submitting to their husbands. It's never done in a vacuum. It's never done on its own. Ephesians 5.24, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And all the guys are like, yeah, I love that verse. But here's verse 25, men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If I love my wife like that, there are going to be many, many, many times where I put her needs, her desires, her dreams above my own. That's submission. I'm submitting to her in that way. That doesn't, however, take away the mantle of authority that I have in my household. I want to also note that Peter says, in the same way, wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Some translations say, accept the authority of your own husband. In other words, Peter is clearly stating that wives should accept the authority of their husband, not men in general. Hey, there is a call in the family and in the church that men carry the mantle of authority. That is not the call in society in general. So a great conversation to have this week at home is what does this look like in our household? I know for my wife and and me, we make all of our major decisions together. I seek her input on it. We pray about it. And thankfully, probably 99% of the time, we come up with the same answer and we can move forward. But every now and then, there's a rare occasion where we don't. And I'm so grateful that my wife submits to my authority in those situations, and she allows me to make the decision. And she doesn't do it because I'm smarter than her. She's way smarter than me. She doesn't do it because I make better decisions than her. I don't always make better decisions than her. She does it because she knows I am willing to give myself up for her and because she knows that God is good and he can be trusted. Second thing I want to explore today is what culture says about beauty. Culture says beauty is skin deep. The Bible says that beauty comes from within. You know, my dad was recently down at Rocky Mountain uh, Rehabilitation Care by Davis Hospital, and every day when I'd go to visit him, I would drive by this billboard on I-15 that says diamonds used to be a girl's 
best friend. Now there's Botox. <laughs> and I'm not picking on the ladies, right? Because if guys weren't so shallow, that sign probably wouldn't say that. But how sad is that? If that were true, if that's really a girl's best friend, how sad is that? What does that say about our culture? We have an unhealthy obsession on outward beauty. And the ridiculous thing is it's so subjective. What was beautiful 100 years ago isn't considered beautiful now, and what's beautiful now probably won't be beautiful in 100 years. It's a moving target. And we spend so much time and energy chasing it. And there's so much pressure, particularly on women, to to achieve this standard of cultural beauty. And as a father of 14 and 11-year-old girls, can I tell you, it drives me up the wall. I can't stand it. Here's how Peter would address that. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. He says, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Now, is it wrong to look our best? No, it's not. Not in and of itself. It's not wrong to look nice. We don't need to get legalistic and say that you can't fix your hair a certain way or you can't wear makeup or you can't wear jewelry. That's not the heart behind the passage. The New Living Translation says don't be concerned about it. It doesn't expressly forbid wearing jewelry or wearing makeup or having a certain hairstyle. It's more about the heart behind it. In fact, in the New American Standard Bible, it says do not be concerned merely about your outward appearance. In other words, you can be concerned about it, but what's most important? What's the main thing? Is the main thing how you look on the outside or how you look on the inside? And what's your heart behind it? Do you dress up a certain way because you hope every eye will be on you? Is it because you want to be the center of attention? What's getting most of your energy and attention? Let me ask the question this way. Do you spend more time every day getting dressed, putting on your makeup and doing your hair than you do in God's word and praying? If so, I would encourage you to ask God if you have an unhealthy obsession over outward beauty. And I think another thing that both men and women need to think about is the amount of time we spend in the gym or exercising. Exercise is great. I'm not against exercise. I love to get out and hike. Uh, It doesn't look like it, but I try to work out three or four times a week. Physical training is of some value, the Bible says. There's nothing wrong with that, but godliness has value for all things. So if we're spending all this time training physically, but we're not feeding our soul, we're not feeding our spirit, something's out of balance. Something's wrong. The Bible teaches that inner beauty is more important. And the wonderful thing about this is that that inner beauty is unfading. See, no matter how hard we work out, no matter how many times we go to the gym, no matter how many injections or tummy tucks or procedures we get done, eventually your outward beauty is going to fade. It's just the reality of living in a fallen world. But your inward beauty only gets better with time. It's like a fine wine. The older it gets, the better that it is. And Peter mentions a gentle and a quiet spirit. Now, before you get any ideas, guys, quiet here does not mean that women should be seen and not heard. That has nothing to do with what this word quiet means. Quiet here means peaceful, tranquil, steady, because of a divinely inspired calmness. My wife and I have been married almost 27 years. 
She has a few more wrinkles now than when we first got married, as do I. She hasn't lost any of her hair, which I cannot make that statement, unfortunately. (laughs) But I can honestly say, because I've seen my wife's gentle and quiet spirit, I've seen her sacrifice for me and our kids, I've seen her faithfulness, her loyalty, she is more beautiful to me now than the day we got married. She looks just as radiant to me when she gets up in the morning as when she's going out of town. And I'm not just saying that to get brownie points. She's not even here today. Valentine's Day was last week. I don't need brownie points for a long time. Like, right? Young ladies, can I, can I say something to you that I say to my daughters? God's word says that your inner beauty is of great value. It's precious. Your inner beauty is precious to God. Don't ever get down because some boy doesn't think you look the right way. That's his issue, not yours. And young men, would you act like young men, not boys with whiskers? Would you start treating women with respect? Would you stop looking at them as objects? Because if you find someone who's got that inner beauty, she'll still take your breath away in her 50s, in her 60s, and beyond. Next thing that culture tries to tell us is that patriarchy is evil. The Bible says that godly men still exist. Patriarchy is under extreme attack in our culture. I would say masculinity in general is as well. I want you to try and think of a single TV series that was produced after the early 90s where the dad in a traditional family isn't a slob, an idiot, or completely out of touch with his family. It's tough to think of one, isn't it? There's a YouTube video going around right now that talks about the 12 evils of eating meat. And one of the supposed evils is it perpetuates patriarchy. I may or may not have left a comment on that video that says I like my steak medium rare. So <laughs> I, I, I hope my vegan friends will extend some grace to me. <laughs> but men, I would say this though. We have to recognize that much of the attack on patriarchy is because... Culture in the past has elevated a toxic patriarchy. We've gotten it wrong. We've messed up a lot. We haven't led well, and we have to take ownership of that. You know, there have been men who call themselves Christians who use this idea of patriarchy to justify selfishness and laziness and neglect and bullying and even abuse. And we need to confess that if we recognize any of that in our own lives. But that's not what the Bible portrays as biblical patriarchy. Here's how Peter addresses it in verse 7. He says, In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. We read this verse, and that seems to make sense to us, but I think we forget just how radical this would have been when Peter wrote it down. See, in the ancient culture, the husband had all of the rights in a marriage. A wife virtually had zero rights. In fact, in the Roman world, when Peter wrote this, if a man caught his wife in the act of adultery, he could kill her on the spot. No questions asked. If a woman caught her husband doing the same thing, she couldn't do anything about it. Is that fair? Absolutely not. That's that toxic patriarchy we were just talking about. But there's this narrative out there that says Christianity demeans women. The Bible did more to advance the rights of women and how they're treated than any other document in history. This would have been radical when Peter wrote it. And then here we see this phrase, in the same way again. Just like we saw to wives, in the same way. Now to husbands it says, in the same way. 
See, the way wives accept authority from their husbands and the way husbands honor their wives work together. They're interwoven. It's beautiful when it's done the right way. And then notice the command is to the husband to give honor to his wife. We should be taking the initiative on this. She shouldn't have to come and ask us for it. This is something that we should be leading in as a leader in the home. We should be giving honor to our wives. When's the last time you gave honor to your wife? When's the last time you praised her? When's the last time you thanked her or encouraged her? When is the last time you took her advice? If you think leading in the home means you don't ever take your wife's advice, you're not a very good leader because good leaders value input. Let me ask you this question, husbands. If your buddies had never met your wife and all they had to go on as far as what they knew about her was how you talk about her when she's not around, what would they think of her? One of my biggest pet peeves is when a guy gripes and complains about his wife. I don't even listen to her. I just walk away. You go talk that garbage to somebody else. I don't need to hear it. One of the things I love about Pastor Joel is when Jordan's not around, he is often affirming and complimenting her because he knows he married way out of his league. <laughs> Just like I married way out of my league. <laughs> See, when we give our wives honor like that, it makes it so much easier for them to accept our authority. The other part of that verse is it says to treat her with understanding. So study your wife. Be smart about your relationship. Know what her primary love language is. Know what her primary apology language is. And then it talks about living together under the same roof. And the idea is that we really live together. We don't just share a space. We, we, we talk together. We, we talk about our hopes and dreams. We work together. We play together. We laugh together. We cry together. We're on mission with Jesus together. That's how that relationship should look. And again, when we honor our wives like that, it makes it so much easier for them to accept our authority. It makes it so much easier for us to lead. Why? Because we're leading like a servant. We're leading like Jesus led. Next thing I want to talk about is, that, excuse me, culture says that men and women are equal. Or sorry, culture says men and women are equal. The Bible says men and women are the equal. Okay, third time, it's a charm. <laughs> culture says men and women are the same. The Bible says men and women are equal. Here's how Peter says it in the second part of verse 7. He says, she may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Here's just another verse of many that affirms women's equality in the eyes of God. That men and women are equal. We're not the same, but we're equal. And when Peter says she's weaker, he's talking about physically. He's talking about physical strength here. I know there are some exceptions, but in most cases, men have more muscle mass. They're going to be stronger. They're going to be faster. I just watched the Women's World Arm Wrestling Championships with my son last week, and I have no doubt every one of them would hammer me if I tried to arm wrestle those women. They would probably snap my arm like a twig, like they would beat me. But if they wrestled men who were professional arm wrestlers, they're going to lose. We're just different. We're not the same. But in our standing before God, when it comes to our value and our worth, we're equal. Peter says we're co-heirs. I love that. And guys, can I just say, we should be celebrating those differences because those differences were created before the fall, before sin entered the world. So instead of acting like we're the same, if we celebrated those differences, life would be better because God is good 
and he can be trusted. The last point that I want to talk about, culture says that Christians are divided, and I I would submit that sometimes we are. The Bible says Christians unite. See, there's something going on right now in culture at large, but I think even within the church that is promoting division. And we know what it is. It's the enemy. There is a real enemy out there who is doing everything he can to destroy us. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. The devil uses all kinds of means and methods to try and destroy. And I would say right now the devil's been using a healthy dose of division. And it's not just the division we experience because we're foreigners and this isn't our permanent home. I'm talking about division within the church. There are a handful of topics I could bring up right now in this room that would cause all kinds of friction between us. It shouldn't be that way. But are we taking our cues on how to handle tough issues from culture or are we taking them from the Bible? 1 Peter 3.8. Peter says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Now, when Peter says that we should all be of one mind, does that mean we have to agree on everything? No, it doesn't. But it does mean that we should be operating from the same set of basic principles and values. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That should be the filter that we're running everything through. That doesn't mean everything's going to be the same. We're still going to have some differences. Let's not confuse unity with uniformity. They're not the same thing. They're different. We can still be united even though we have differences. I can still love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I can still be united in mission with them if one of us is pre-trib and one of us is post-trib. I can still be united and still be on mission with someone if they prefer traditional hymns and I prefer contemporary Christian worship music. I can still be united with someone if one of us believes that drinking in moderation is okay and the other one is a teetotaler. I can even still be united if they use Miracle Whip instead of mayonnaise. (laughs) It would take the Holy Spirit's power to be sure, but I could do it, right? See, Peter tells us to sympathize with one another to try to understand where the other person's coming from, to try and feel what they're feeling. You know, the Bible talks about how we should weep with those who weep and we should rejoice with those who rejoice. He says to live together as brothers and sisters. He's talking about real relationship, their real connection. You, You can't live together as brothers and sisters if you only connect for 60 minutes on Sunday. It just doesn't work that way. That's why we talk so much about small groups and serving teams and mentors. Because that's how we learn to really live life together. Then he talks about being tender-hearted and having a humble attitude. I would just ask you, are you compassionate to other Christians, particularly other Christians who maybe have a different viewpoint than you on some issues? How can we be more compassionate? How can we think in humility? One of the ways God has really humbled me over the years is I used to think that I was a good judge, a good judge of people's motives. I used to think that I knew why somebody said or did something, and I found out I do not know. 
Most of the time, I am not a very good judge at all about people's motives, and my guess is neither are you. But we like to think that we are. So let's get humble. <laughs> let's give each other the benefit of the doubt. There are going to be some hard conversations for sure. But when we have those conversations, let's take our cues from God's word instead of the way culture wants us to do it. I know some of the things that we looked at today are probably pressing a little bit. They're striking a nerve because they're different than what culture tells us. There may be some things that, that you're wrestling with, and that's okay, but what I would ask you to do is fact check me with God's word. Don't fact check me with what culture says or what feels right. Because the Bible tells us in Jeremiah that the heart above all things is deceitful. Who can know it? If you trust your feelings, it will lead you into trouble. I promise you that. I guarantee you. And I would just encourage you to remember that God is good, like we sang earlier. And so if God has given us guidelines on how the family should run or how the church should run, we, we should trust him in that because he has our best at heart. And if we ever doubt that, again, I would just say he never more powerfully demonstrated his trustworthiness than he did at the cross where he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life with him even though none of us deserve it, none of us have earned it. If you have questions about that or if you'd like to talk about that more, we'll have leaders up front. I'm sure they'd love to have that conversation. For those of us who've already done that, I just pray today that what we read today, what we looked at today would have a real practical application this week. Husbands, can I just challenge you? Would you take the lead on this? Would you love your wives like Christ loved the church this week? If you're single, would you look for people with inner beauty? Would you not objectify women? That's my challenge to the man. Ladies, I feel like I've already challenged you because I know some of the stuff we talked about is not easy to hear. But I just pray that you would know that God is good and you can trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word because your word doesn't change. In the ebbs and flows of culture as, as things are so subjective and are constantly shifting, I mean like beauty, it's this moving target, but not in your word. In your word, we know what inner beauty looks like, and it's solid, it's stable, and it never fades. God, I do pray for all the husbands in here today. I pray that, that we would take the challenge that you've given us, the command you've given us to love our wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God, that has real, that has real teeth to it. <laughs> That's not just some theoretical thing that we throw around and talk about. We are going to have opportunities to practice that this week. I guarantee it. Anyone in here who's married is going to have opportunities to give himself up for his wife. So I pray that we do that. And God, for the wives in here, I pray that they'd be able to trust the authority of their husband, even when he messes up, even when he makes mistakes, that they would trust that you have a plan in this and that you are good. And God, I pray that as, as we see this mutual submission where husbands put the needs of their wives above their own and wives submit to the authority of their husbands, it, it's a beautiful thing. And it's something that our culture will notice. I firmly believe it's something that our culture will want. And it's going to give us opportunities to share the gospel. Help us to be prepared for those, Lord God. Help us to, to be willing to step out in faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.